Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host, and today's episode will be on the topic of agorism. This is the one that I had referenced two episodes ago and delayed, but now we are getting to it, and that is what we'll talk about. So if you have been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know what agorism is. If not, then this will be a good introduction for you, and we're also then going to get into some aspects and perspectives that are very different than what I have covered in other episodes. So it's not just repeat content. We are going to look at this from the perspective of this season, uh, which is the idea of looking at the early church as a historical example of a movement that was based on an ideology that was against the culture and against the state of its day. And we are comparing that to modern alternative movements such as agorism. And that's kind of the point of this season. And so since that is what we are doing, we've talked a little bit about um, the theology and perspective of the early church in relation to the state and some other things. We've defined some fundamental concepts on philosophy and looked into some other religions and kind of how they viewed things. We looked at the natural order and created a framework for that and actually defined what that is by looking at the reality that exists around us. And so now that we've kind of laid that groundwork down, now we're going to look at what agorism is. What are we comparing this to and how can we look at agorism from a different perspective than the creator of agorism started from? Because this was definitely not a Christian movement by any means. But again, there's a lot of overlap here between at least the original church and agorism. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about for a good, realistic example of things. Because we do want to be realistic. We don't want to create some utopia that can never be manifested. We want something that is realistic. We want something that has historical parallels and historical examples that are historically successful. And that is something that will mark a good thing to shoot for. And so that's what I believe we have found here. So for the uninitiated, agorism is a term that was coined by Samuel Edward Konkin III, also known as SEK3 or SEC3. But hereafter, I will refer to him simply as Konkin. So agorism gets its name from the Greek agora, which was the marketplace, the public square, and kind of general epicenter of social interaction and transaction of a city. A lot of the philosophers philosophers gathered there and the people buying and selling things met there. That was what the Agora was. And Konkin believed that voluntary interaction was the only morally acceptable structure for a society. He was heavily influenced by Austrian economics, especially Ludwig von Mises, and his philosophy was something that was forged kind of in the anti-establishment milieu of the 1970s and coming into those uh, alternative movements of that day. So that's kind of the uh, background on where agorism gets its name from and who started, I guess, coining that term at least and defining it out. That would be Konkin. But moving on from that to actually say what it is, kind of the simplest way to describe agorism, even though it's not really complete, but you could view it as 
operating outside of any governmental, political, or corporate system in a voluntary manner where there is no force or coercion in existence for oneself or for others. That's kind of a basic definition of what agorism is. So it's not being a part of the state or dealing with mega corporations or giant centralized supply chains, these kinds of things. Agorism is dealing with people generally one-on-one or at least on a small-scale decentralized basis and all based on voluntary interaction. So that taxes might not be something that would be very conducive to the concept of agorism. Now, I want to quote Konkin himself a little bit here because I think that would just be the best way to lay out Konkin's thoughts. So this first quote will come from an agorist primer, which is one I actually just reread or actually listened to the audio version of a few days ago, and it's really good. Highly recommend it. Pretty short, so it's an easy read. But uh, this comes out of that. And he says, the goal of agorism is the agora. The society of the open marketplace as near to untainted by theft, assault, and fraud as can be humanly attained is as close to a free society as can be achieved. And a free society is the only one in which each and every one of us can satisfy his or her subjective values without crushing others' values by violence and coercion. So that's kind of his uh, more moral stance of where agorism comes from and how it's practically manifested. But then Konkin laid out the evolution of libertarian ideals and basically the history leading to his idea of agorism. And um, this next quote will be him laying that out. And this comes from the New Libertarian Manifesto, which is, I guess, probably the seminal work of Konkin, I would guess. But um, if you find that book, uh, get the one with agorist class theory attached to it. It's a pretty short attachment to the end of New Libertarian Manifesto that fits very well with it. So that's at least my personal recommendation, but highly recommend this book as well. So this is coming from Konkin from the New Libertarian Manifesto about kind of the evolution of libertarianism and coming into this idea of agorism. Libertarianism, as developed to this point, discovered the problem and defined the solution, the state versus the market. The market is the sum of all voluntary human action. If one acts non-coercively, one is part of the market. Thus did economics become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism investigated the nature of man to explain his rights deriving from non-coercion. It immediately followed that man, woman, child, Martian, etc., had an absolute right to this life and other property, and no right to the life or property of others. Thus did objective philosophy become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism asked why society was not libertarian now and found the state, its ruling class, its camouflage, and the heroic historians striving to reveal the truth. Thus did revisionist history become part of libertarianism. Psychology, especially as developed by Thomas Saws as counter-psychology, was embraced by libertarians seeking to free themselves from both state restraint and self-imprisonment, seeking an art form to express the horror potential of the state and extrapolate the many possibilities of liberty, libertarianism found science fiction already in that field. 
from political, economic, philosophical, psychological, historical, and artistic realms, the partisans of liberty saw a whole. Integrating their resistance with others elsewhere, they came together as their consciousness became aware. Thus did libertarians become a movement. And so that gets us into this idea of agorism now as kind of a natural progression of that movement, of that morality, these kinds of things. And so the application of agorism for individuals living under a state must be accomplished through counter-economics. That's kind of the uh, main framework that agorism operates in is the counter-economy. So to continue this theme of allowing Konkin to explain himself in his own words, I will quote Konkin once again. Quote, the counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. Counter-economics is the study of the counter-economy and its practices. The counter-economy includes the free market, the black market, the underground economy, all acts of civil and social disobedience, all acts of forbidden association, sexual, racial, cross-religious, and anything else the state at any place or time chooses to prohibit control, regulate, tax, or tariff. The counter-economy excludes all state-approved action, which would be the white market, and the red market, violence and theft not approved by the state. While some coercive acts, such as murder and theft, are often lumped into the label black market, the vast majority of this organized crime is perfectly legitimate to a libertarian, though occasionally unsavory. The mafia, for example, is not black market, but a government over some of the black market that collects the protection money, or taxes, from its victims and enforces its control with executions and beatings, law enforcement, and even conducts wars when its monopoly is threatened. These acts will be considered red market to differentiate them from the moral acts of the black market, which will be discussed below. In short, the black market is anything nonviolent that is prohibited by the state and carried on anyway. The gray market is used here to mean dealing in goods and services not themselves illegal, but obtained or distributed in ways legislated against by the state. Much of what is called white-collar crime falls under this heading and is smiled upon by most of society. Where one draws the line between black and gray market depends largely on the state of consciousness of the society in which one lives. The red market is clearly separable. Murder is red market. So that should cover the, I guess, the most important aspects of what Konkin had to say about agorism and the counter-economy that should give you a really good idea of what we're talking about when I say agorism. Agorism and counter-economics can definitely fall within the realm of applying biblical principles. So going back to this early church analogy, this is something that is very legitimate. Yeshua often operated in this way against the systems of his day. He didn't directly rebel, but he did act contrary to the ruling Roman and Jewish political, religious, societal, all these different structures and systems on a regular basis. He often operated outside of the system. At the same time, the Bible is clear in regards to how we should act in relation to the law of the land. 
So long, the relevant biblical principle here would be that so long as the law does not directly force us to rebel against God, we are to submit to that authority over us and follow their regulations. So agorism and counter-economics could therefore be viewed by the Christian as a structure and a method to use as much as possible, but only within the bounds of biblical principles. And that would have been how the early church would have viewed things. So even if a Christian desires to interact with another in a voluntary way that harms no one, if that interaction directly conflicts with the law of the land and is not a direct application of biblical teaching, then the Christian and the original church would likely be extremely cautious before taking that said action. And so you can come up with these questions out of this naturally of, well, what if the law is unjust? Or what if the local law conflicts with the federal law or constitutional law or common law? Or if these various sources of law conflict with each other? These matters might deserve some attention, but that is not the point of this episode now. The point of this episode is just looking at this idea of agorism and the early church and playing out how these things work together and looking at it from that perspective so we can look at something that actually is realistic and has historical precedence. So going from there... If the law of the land prohibits an action that does correspond to a direct biblical teaching, then agorist philosophy is a very useful and acceptable method for following God's law while peacefully rejecting man's law and doing so without infringing on another's natural God-given rights and freedoms. So, As with any secular and often many Christian philosophies or concepts, the believer must always do a comprehensive and thorough analysis of how it relates to biblical principles and apply the said ideas only when the two agree while rejecting any aspects of contradiction. But that can be very difficult to do at times because there's a lot of gray area there. Uh, You can look at something like taxes, for example. There are times when Jesus directly says, well, pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And I'll probably actually address that at some point in the season. But uh, related to this topic here, the idea here is that when the state demands something of you, even if they have no right to demand it of you, even if that is not their property, even if they are a corrupt institution that does bad things with tax dollars, they are still the authority over you, and therefore, you are supposed to submit to them as long as there is no direct contradiction. So, for example, if I was approached by the IRS and they said, you owe us $100, well, I would be obliged to pay that $100 even though I know the state murders innocent people and that is evil and wrong and against biblical principles. But what I do not know is if my $100 really has anything to do with that whatsoever. That $100 very well might go to supporting a homeless shelter or helping out an adoption agency or any number of things that we could argue are either good or at least are not evil and in direct contradiction to the natural order. And so, since that is beyond my control, what is in my control is whether or not I directly rebel against the state. 
And from the Christian perspective, from the original church's perspective, no, you do not rebel against the state. But that does not mean that the state is good or moral or even legitimate. It just means that their legitimacy is as an authority over you, and so long as that does not contradict the authority over them, which would be God and biblical principles, then you are at least to submit to them. Now, there is no example of the original church supporting the state or becoming one with the state or using political means to achieve their own ends, that is not the way of the original church. And that is where you have this overlap with agorism, because that's not the way of agorism either. Agorism is not politics. Agorism doesn't have anything to do with politics. But as is pointed out multiple times in the New Testament, there is this matter of conscience on one side of not rebelling against the state or the authorities or the religious order or anything else, as long as it's not contradicting biblical principles. On one hand, that's a conscience issue. That's an issue of maybe morality or principle. But there's also a practical side of this where if you rebel against the state directly, if you directly fight the state, if you're directly involved with the state, then it probably won't go very well for you if you are directly against the state. The state is very strong. It's powerful. It's influential. Uh, imagine if the early church directly went out against Rome and called Rome out as being corrupt and not having the authority it said that it had and actually actively rebelling against all of Rome's laws. Well, they probably would have been squashed pretty quickly and easily by Rome. But... Since they did not outright do that, they didn't directly rebel against Rome, they didn't pick up arms, so they didn't get involved in the red market, which Konkin says you, know, you should never do, but what they did is they built out these alternative systems instead. They practiced agorism. They dealt in the counter-economy, so instead of having their children educated by Rome and under the Roman culture, they would educate their own children. Instead of being a part of the welfare system of Rome, the church itself, that local small community church, would be a welfare system for anyone involved there and even do outreach into the community and helping out the poor. So it's kind of like this idea of even if a Christian was called to be a soldier and Rome demanded that they become a soldier, well, they didn't cut and run, or they didn't uh, fight the people coming to tell them and say, no, I'm not coming with you, you know, on my dead body. You know, they didn't do anything like that. They actually did join the service as they were required, but they never contradicted the biblical principles of uh, living according to the light side of the natural order, of not killing people, of not contradicting any of those things. And so there were a lot of complaints by Roman officers that they had all these Christians, but they weren't really good for anything because they wouldn't kill people. They wouldn't fight. And there are other things that they would not do. And so even though the Christians submitted, they did not actively support the state, and they did disobey the state. They did rebel in ways, in times, that it was in a direct contradiction to their beliefs and principles. And that is what I would say is a very similar strategy with agorism, that 
It's not necessarily that I am trying to disobey the state, disregard the state. I'm trying to actively rebel and fight against the state. No, what I am trying to do is just live outside of the state. And in doing so, there is some rebellion there. In doing so, I am definitely not supporting the state. But at the same time, I personally will submit to the state when it's not a major issue of principle. And I think that that can be something that you can tie into this idea of agorism, and definitely you can tie to the early church. And so with all this, it would then fall on the individual to act and live in accordance with the kingdom of God. And at times, this would mean acting in a way contrary to earthly authorities. But the goal is to find ways to act that both follow God's ideals and aren't against man's laws. So this is where I would separate agorism from, you could say, kingdom living or the life of the original church. With agorism, through counter-economics, the individual is acting and transacting in directly illegal ways, deliberately, on a regular basis. While this is not always biblically wrong, it is not the biblical ideal. So at the same time, the state is a part of the kingdom of man and largely operates through corruption and immorality. So the synthesis that I would propose would be to use agorism when the actions in question contradict biblical principles, but to also apply the overall means principle of agorism even in the legal realm. So there are many ways to operate outside of the system without participating in illegal action. When we legally avoid paying very much in taxes, going through licenses and registration, supporting big business with our money, giving recognition to the system through voting, using politics to achieve goals, relying on the state or corporate world for our necessities, and other unsavory activities of the sort, we are withdrawing much of our support from the system just through living in ways that are in line with biblical principles and without any rebellion. So as long as we withdraw our activity in all of these things, we can do so without directly breaking the law. So we're not going against the state. We are still technically in submission to the state. And that is a true statement. But at the same time, we are still operating outside of the state and outside of their immorality and their corrupt system. And so we are both operating in line with the natural order and operating technically in line with state regulation. We then nullify the kingdom of man by giving it no support, no merit, no legitimacy. We recognize that the system uses its support and authority to act in ways contrary to God, and therefore we do not participate with or aid these manifestations of the kingdom of man. So that is the overall idea of my synthesis between the original church and agorism. So even though agorism is all about the counter-economy, which is basically all illegal activity that's outside of the red market, the Christian ideal is to not directly rebel against the state and to live in peace and love with others, even if someone is operating in a way against you that is immoral or wrong, uh, force, coercion, these types of things, that even when that is the case, 
you should still live at peace with that person and try to find a way to live at peace in that system. Whereas in agorism, that's not necessarily the case. So I've got a few more quotes that I would like to read here from some books that I really enjoyed. This first one is from Christian Anarchy, Jesus's Primacy Over the Powers, and this would be by Bernard Eller. And this short quote would say, quote, The intent is entirely that of obeying God, it being entirely incidental that, unavoidably, the Archie had to be disobeyed in the process. The Archie would be um, the state, pretty much. And this next quote is from the book Thy Kingdom Come by Blumhart. And I'll insert for context here, he's talking about all the archidom, which um, the archie, again, would be like the state, the rulership, the elite, these kinds of things. So I'll read that into the first section here. All the archidom we have had up to this point is on its last run downwards. Our theology is moving down with the rapidity of a lowering storm. Our ecclesiastical perceptions are rapidly becoming political perceptions. Our worship services are being accommodated to the world, and thus it is necessary that all that has been should cease, should come to its end, making room again for something new, namely the kingdom of God. And this final quote, uh, well, yeah, I guess final quote would be from David Lipscomb, and this book would be On Civil Government, one I would also extremely, highly, highly recommend. Really liked this one. It's relatively short, but very potent if you are into this idea of the Christian perspective on anarchism, so to say. So this quote would be, quote, it is the duty of the Christian to submit to the human government in its office and work and to seek its destruction only by spreading the religion of Christ, and so converting men from service to the earthly government to service to the heavenly one, and so, too, by removing the necessity for its existence and work. No violence, no sword, no bitterness or wrath can he use. The spread of the peaceful principles of the Savior will draw men out of the kingdoms of earth into the kingdoms of God. And so you see a lot of parallels there with the idea of agorism and not operating in the red market, not operating through force, coercion, violence. You know, this is exactly what Lipscomb is saying here, that we may not use violence and we should not use politics. That instead, if we are truly living up to these principles and operating outside of the system, then it will be it will draw people to this movement, and it will be a movement that is actually moral, but also successful. It will be very attractive to others, and especially as the state, the government, the culture, the whatever becomes more and more corrupt, and that becomes more and more obvious, that makes your movement become more and more obviously moral and better. And so that in and of itself does draw attention and does draw people to it. Now, if all Christians lived in this manner, the state would become a minor factor in society. It would fade into a state of unnecessary existence, 
on its way to non-existence because you would have this group of people and you could input agorists instead of Christians here, depending on the time period and perspective you're looking at. But if human beings within our current society chose to live outside of the system, outside of the state, to live in the counter-economy as much as is reasonably possible, then this is when the state would be a minor factor or would start to fade away. The state only has power because individuals give it legitimacy and use it to accomplish their desires for themselves and for others. That's the idea of voting, for example. So what happens when we as individuals shift our faith, reliance, support, human action and legitimacy to the kingdom of God and only view the state as foreign land we are living in as representatives and ambassadors. And this is an idea that does come from the Bible. And this, so the New Testament, the words of the original church itself, uh, you could look at 2 Corinthians 5.20, says, Therefore we, am, we are ambassadors of the Messiah. In effect, God is making his appeal through us. What we do is appeal on behalf of the Messiah. Be reconciled to God. And so that was their role, was, was to be an ambassador, a representative. That is what the original church was, was an ambassador for God that was living in this world under this human system, under Rome, which was corrupt. It was persecuting them. It was prosecuting them. It was killing them. The culture was against them. The religious institutions that were dominant in the day, especially the Jewish ones, were very against them. So they had had enemies on all sides, but they had this principle, this morality that they stuck to of being representatives and ambassadors of God and therefore living under these biblical principles that came from God, and they would not budge on that. And that put them directly in conflict with and in contradiction to the systems they were living under. And so that was the predicament that they were in. And instead of directly fighting the state, which there were sects that did want to directly rebel against Rome. There were some that wanted to start a Jewish state totally independent of Rome. There were some that sought lots of other means of doing so. Some were part of the major religious movements that were wanting to draw more political power and become more intertwined with the state for their own benefit. There were lots of different strategies that were available and that different people were pursuing, even different people that followed the scriptures as the early church did. But the early church chose this different strategy. And in doing so, they did withdraw support from the state. You had examples like plenty of the nobility decided to not get married and to not have children. They chose abstinence. And that was a big movement that was going on in the very early original church. And with that in Rome, that caused a lot of problems when you had this noble class that was bred into existence. And so when 
that noble class wasn't breeding anymore, you weren't getting more of them, then that causes stagnation and that does cause problems. You had the example of the soldiers that I mentioned earlier. You had tax collectors that would quit their jobs because they believed it was morally wrong to do their jobs. I mean, with the tax collector in Rome at the time, for a lot of them, the way that they made money was to collect more than the taxes. And so what Rome would do is say, oh, collect these taxes from this group. And that tax collector then would do that and give all of that to Rome. So the only way that they made money was to increase the money that they charged that group of people. So if Rome said, you know, bring us, I know it's not dollars, but for example here, bring us $1,000 in taxes from this group, then the tax collector could go to that group and say, oh, I need $2,000 for taxes. And they could pocket 1000 and give 1000 to Rome. But that is corrupt. That is wrong. That is immoral. That would be borderline red market activity, if not fully in the red market. And so that was not something that they believed they could could do in good conscience, and they wouldn't. And so again, with all of this support leaving the system, with a lot of people not actively supporting the system, but also building out parallel structures uh, apart from the system, then there wasn't this reliance on the system nearly as much. And there wasn't this national pride or empirical pride or whatever you want to call that, that was in existence early on in Rome's history. And even at the time of the original church, that started to fade away as the church spread because of not only their beliefs, but also the methods and strategies that they used, things that were a lot more agorist. So building on these ideas, I'm going to read a few more long quotes. This episode does have a lot of me reading in it, so hopefully that's all right with you. I think these are very good passages, so it is definitely worth your time to listen to them. And if anything, they're probably even better than what I have to say myself. So this first one comes from Larkin Rose, who many of you should be familiar with. And the quote is, Think what it implies when you say that a country needs leaders. In your day-to-day life, you interact with all sorts of other individuals. And that's all society is, the collective name for lots of individuals. But for some inexplicable reason, we're taught to believe that one huge arbitrary chosen assortment of individuals, the citizens of one human livestock farm, I mean country, need some control freaks acting as intermediaries in order to interact with a different arbitrarily chosen assortment of individuals, the citizens of some other human livestock farm, I mean country, because, gee, how could I and some random person in the middle of China possibly leave each other alone if we didn't each have a gang of narcissistic sociopaths claiming to represent us? Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly how and why pretty much all wars happen. Because different gangs of power-happy psychos pit their pawns against each other in violent conflict while claiming to represent subsets of humanity. One more example of how government is a problem posing as its own solution. Now, this next quote comes from... The Politics of Obedience, the Discourse of Voluntary Servitude, and this would be one of the others that's a must-read, and I'll butcher the name, I know, I always forget it every time I look at the pronunciation, but Etienne de la Botet, 
I think. He's a French guy. And this was, I think, 1500s or so. It's pretty old. But he is spot, spot on on this aspect of what happens when you withdraw your support from the system. And this is the point right here. So catch this. Quote, Poor, wretched, and stupid peoples, nations determined on your own misfortune and blind to your own good. You let yourselves be deprived before your own eyes of the best part of your revenues. Your fields are plundered, your homes robbed, your family heirlooms taken away. You live in such a way that you cannot claim a single thing as our own. And it would seem that you consider yourselves lucky to be loaned your property, your families, and your very lives. All this havoc, this misfortune, this ruin descends upon you not from alien foes, but from the one enemy whom you yourselves render as powerful as he is, for whom you bravely go to war, for whose greatness you do not refuse to offer your own bodies unto death." Where has he acquired enough eyes to spy on you if you do not provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? The feet that trample down your cities, where does he get them if they are not your own? How does he have any power over you except through you? How would he dare assail you if he had no cooperation from you? What could he do to you if you yourselves did not connive with the thief who plunders you, if you were not accomplices of the murderer who kills you, if you were not traitors to yourselves? You sow crops in order that he may ravage them. You install and furnish your homes to give him goods to pillage. You rear your daughters that he may gratify his lusts. You bring up your children in order that he may confer upon them the greatest privilege he knows, to be led into his battles, to be delivered to butchery, to be made servants of his greed and the instruments of his vengeance. You yield your bodies unto hard labor in order that he may indulge in his delights and wallow in his filthy pleasures. You weaken yourselves in order to make him stronger and the mightier to hold you in check. From all these indignities, such as the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourselves if you try, not by taking action, but merely by willing to be free." Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight, and break into pieces. So that would definitely be... Talking about all of these things that we're talking about, withdraw your support, because your support is the only reason they have power. And if the people withdrew that support, then those in charge would not have the power. The reason they had the power is because, yeah, you're buying spy devices to put in your homes. You're willingly being a part of data collection schemes by big tech. You are actively buying poisons for yourself, for the environment, and for those around you. You are putting your kids in public indoctrination camps to be trained to love the state. These are the things you are doing. And by you, I mean the general citizens of this country or any other country. Um, this is what's happening. And it's no different now than it was in the 1500s. This is something that we should all consider. Now, when 
he talks about some of the effects of what the leadership does, what the state does. This is something that does have some direct correlation with the original church, because not only were they having their own issues with the state, but they based their beliefs off of the Old Testament, off of the scriptures. And let me read you a passage from these scriptures that basically says a very similar story of what will happen when you set a king over you. What does the state do? So this would be from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 20. Samuel was not pleased to hear them say, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to Adonai. Adonai said to Samuel, Listen to the people, to everything they say to you, for it is not you that they are rejecting. They are rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they have been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today by abandoning me and serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. Samuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people, asking him for a king. He said, Here is the kind of rulings your king will make. He will draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots, be his horsemen, and be bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He will appoint them to serve him as officers in charge of a thousand or of fifty, plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, and making weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters and have them be perfume makers, cooks, and bakers. He will expropriate your fields, vineyards, and olive groves, the very best of them." and hand them over to his servants. He will take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys, and make them work for him. He will take the 10% tax of your flocks and you will become his servants. When that happens, you will cry out on account of your king whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai will not answer you. However, the people refused to listen to what Samuel told them, and they said, No, we want a king over us, so that we can be like all the other nations, with our king to judge us, lead us, and fight our battles. Yeah, how naive. What in the world? People are crazy. But that's kind of the point. Like, that's what Larkin Rose was saying. That's what we got out of the politics of obedience. That's what God is recorded as saying in the book of Samuel. Like, it's all the same thing. It's, this is what the state will do, period. And you are the reason why they exist and have their power. And for some reason, you keep asking for it. It's just, it baffles the mind sometimes. So moving on from reading uh, just a brief break from this, the Christian agorist accomplishes their desires for themselves and others through direct biblical action themselves without the intermediary institution of the state that sucks out value and effectiveness between them and those they are serving. So it's not a matter of left versus right, of progressivism versus conservatism, of the rich versus the poor, or the proletariat against the bourgeoisie, or any other spectrum of human parties or classes. It's simply a matter of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. We choose the former without much regard to the latter. Yeshua calls us to act as individuals, 
and help other individuals. He shows us how to do this with little to no interaction with political systems. Our only group identity is as citizens of the kingdom of God, members of his church, ambassadors of his rule. Yeshua didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse, as other leaders of the day would do. He came in peace on a donkey in a humble manner, and his war of revolution was no war or revolution at all. It was the establishment of a new kingdom entirely with a peaceful and agorist nature. He is the epitome of Christian agorism. His kingdom is the ultimate manifestation of his rule. It will continue to spread and conquer with the defenses of the prince of this world, the adversary, the ruler of the kingdom of man, unable to stand against the advancement of God's kingdom. Because the kingdom of man, the adversary, the prince of this world, however you want to describe that, the dark side of the natural order operates on deceit. That's one of the final aspects of the dark side of the natural order that I covered a few episodes. It was deceit. They deceive people into supporting the state. They deceive people into begging for the state, into wanting the state, into wanting rulers over them, despite knowing how those rulers will act, how corrupt they will be, how they will take their money, they will take people's, people's lives, they will sacrifice their neighbors, if not themselves, for their own vanity and their own glory and their own wealth and their own power. That's what modern wars are. And yet the people just, they support it. It's, it's just so ridiculous. Like the, the more you go over these things, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, when I talk about the, um, the issues that uh, this is not, it's not left versus right, it's not progressivism, conservatism, the rich versus the poor. If you go to the book Agorist Class Theory, which is at the end of many copies, many of the newer copies, copies of uh, the New Libertarian Manifesto by Konkin, in that book, he does talk about how the two classes essentially are agorists and statists with people that operate in both worlds in the middle. And so it's this uh, kind of this scale of authoritarianism versus individualism in a sense where it's voluntary action on one side, agorism, and statism or coercion or force or whatever, authoritarianism on the other side. So there are some that do believe in the state. There are some that want the state. There are some that want to operate in the state's system. And even if they would not admit that, if you directly ask them, and they probably wouldn't admit that to themselves, look at what they do. Look at their fruit. Look at their actions. Where are their kids all day, every day? You know, where do they get their food from? Is it the farmer's market or is it the Walmart? Um, all these kinds of things. Are they participating in the system in whatever manner and manifestation that takes? Or are they participating in something more agorist, something more akin to this idea of the kingdom of God, the light side of the natural order, a voluntary market are they participating in the Agora? Are they dealing with voluntary means of the way they live their lives? Or are they participating in the system, in an authoritarian, centralized, corrupt, immoral system? Those are the two options. And there are some that do both, but like I talked about last episode, the, that concept of leaven, how a little leaven leavens the whole loaf, that's kind of the point. Even if you are doing some things good, but you're also 
you know, supporting the state in other ways in a direct manner and consistently doing so deliberately, then that's wrong. And that is something that would then put you on that side of the scale if that is where you choose to go. Like the Israelites, they willingly and gratefully chose to have a king despite being warned all the horrors of what that would mean. They still wanted it. And the same is true of many people in today's world. I'm actually working on doing an episode with uh, somebody that most of you are probably familiar with, another podcaster, and hopefully I'll be able to set this up where we'll talk about two different strategies of where to go from here to attain more liberty and more freedom. What is the path forward? And he would take more of a Machiavellian approach, and I take more of the Agorist Christian approach. And so um, in doing some preparation for this, assuming that this will happen, and I hope it does, I think it'll be a very interesting conversation. But assuming that that does, I went ahead and read the book, The Machiavellians. And that's one that he had been referencing. And I've heard uh, other podcasters that I listen to have also been referencing this book in particular, and the strategy definitely overall. But I went ahead and read that book. And um, there, there are definitely things that I, I agree with totally. It's it's a good book, good read. But there's also some conclusions that I totally disagree with, and and that's part of this idea of the competing powers of the left versus the right, or whatever um, comparison you want to draw based on different aspects of society. But according to this book, you have these different. Uh, kind of realms of power within society. You have these different structures that are um, powerful, whether it be a religious institution, the political institution, the war machine, you know, whatever, all of these different things, the intellectual class, they all have power and influence. And in any given society or civilization, one has dominance of power, but it is still kept in check by some of these others. And the same would be true of, let's say, that ruling institution. So in modern times, let's say the state. So with the state, there is a group that is in power. We'll use America as the example right now. And so uh, as of this recording, we have President Joe Biden in charge, and he is a part of the Democrat Party. And the Democrats are in charge. The left, the progressives are the ones in charge. But they do not have full power and influence. They're kept very much in check by the existence of someone that is against their views and against their perspective. And they do have the right and the free speech to actually come out and actively oppose the Democrats. And that would be the Republicans. So it's the right versus the left. And the right keeps the left in check to a degree. The left keeps the right in check to a degree. And that's kind of this balance of power. But the thing that I want to point out that that the author of the Machiavellians does not point out and I think gets left out so much is, again, that it's not about the left versus the right. Yes, one does keep the other in check. Yes, having Congress and having the Senate and having the legislative branch and the judicial branch and all these different branches and the different parliamentary systems of other countries, yes, there are checks and balances. And yes, that can be good. But number one, just look at the historical evidence of how well that has worked since the beginning of the Constitution. Look at the size of the government back then and look at the size of the government now. And yeah, how much has that system of checks and balances 
really kept the power in check. I would argue not very much. And the dichotomy that I think is much more important than this balancing of powers at the top of society is just this balance of the submission to authoritarianism and the push towards statism versus the application of agorism and the existence of the counter-economy. Those are the two opposing forces that I think have a lot more impact. And so when you have a strong counter-economy, a strong sense of um, individualism and freedom and kind of the idea of colonial America in a sense, that is something that is hard to control by the state. Because as we have seen, the state gets its control, it gets its power, it gets its influence by being given it from the citizens. And if the citizens are not giving it because they are operating in a different way, they have a different philosophy, they have a different way of living, then the state doesn't have much power and they are kept in check. That is a power balance. And I think that is a much more important power balance. And historically, I think it's a much more effective power balance. And that is one that is, I would say, uh, definitely waning in modern times. But I think it's on the rise. And I think that would be a good thing. Because where centralization and authoritarianism has become more and more dominant, um, I, I believe that that has to be balanced out by the rise of, I will say, agorism, but you can insert libertarianism or anarchy or whatever, uh, fundamental Christianity. I guess that's not really a good phrase to use there, but let's say the ideas of the original church. Um, there are lots of different movements that would fit this umbrella of a more agorist attitude. Those are the things that need to grow. The counter economy needs to grow. And that, in my opinion, is the effective check and the best way to balance the power of the ruling institution of the day, of the corruption that exists within the state. That is what at least I push for personally. And not only is it more historically accurate, not only is it more realistic and effective in my opinion, but it is also much more moral. So it's not something that is using power for power's sake and totally ditching ideology and morality and all these things. No, you can still have morality. You can still be a good person in line with the light side of the natural order. You can still be a good Christian. You can still be a good moral human being within your society and participate in this a system of checks and balances against authoritarianism by being an agorist or by following something similar to agorist philosophy. And that is what I would call people to. Now, I do have quite a few more quotes that I am going to read. I might skip over a few of the ones that I have written out. But these are, again, I, in my opinion, these are extremely good quotes that really highlight different aspects of the subject of this episode in particular. So I'm pretty much done with the episode, but I do want to hit on uh, these quotes that I think are very, very good. This first one, and I believe the second one, come from Bernard Eller from the book Christian Anarchy. And I've read from this earlier on, but this one uh, definitely hits home. It's, quote, Regarding the politics of peace, Alol's maxim definitely applies. Think globally, act locally. 
locally, even below the level of a political structure for that matter, is where all of us politically amateur peacemakers have a chance of making a contribution. We might help a neighbor find peace with God, help someone get at peace with himself, bring peace within a family, and prevent a divorce, and so on up the line. And do not for a moment scorn this level of peacemaking as being peanuts in comparison to international peacemaking. Politics being based upon the humanly probable, the probabilities of making a significant difference are much greater locally than internationally. At the level of the local, the apparently small efforts of a great many people just might add up to a lot more peace than will ever be produced by the efforts of a few experts at the intractable top. And who knows, but that God's will for peace might be meant to work from the bottom up rather than the top down. Another quote from him, quote, Now it may be thought that these two, loving the good and hating the evil, come to the same thing, that they are simply two sides of the same coin, but that just isn't so. Jesus showed us that they are not, at the same time showing that he was not a zealot. He loved the poor, but did it without hating the rich. He loved the poor, indeed, while showing love toward different rich people at the same time. In fact, in his book, Money and Power, Alul argues well that Jesus didn't even draw the good, poor, rich, bad distinction in the same simplistic terms we do. None of this, of course, is to deny that Jesus did recognize an important, although relative, distinction between the poor and the rich. How did he manage it? He managed it by anarchically keeping relative alignments relative, refusing to absolutize them. I'll break up the Bernard Eller quotes because I actually have one more really long one and then one short one from him as well, and I'm pretty much skipping anything else. But in between, I will insert this one short uh, quote from Yeshua himself from Mark chapter 12, verse 17. Yeshua said, Give the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and give to God what belongs to God. And they were amazed at him. This is the same reference to the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. Depends on the translation you look at there. And so the whole point is, the only way to actually obey that would be to not have anything that you owe to Caesar. If you owe something to Caesar, if you are using Caesar's money, Caesar's systems, if you are a part of Caesar's apparatus, then you owe him some allegiance. You owe him some pay for his services. You owe him different things. If you're using the Roman coin, then you owe him the Roman coin. Now, there were other coins. The Jews did have their own temple money, and uh, it might be an issue that the Jews that were questioning Yeshua pulled out a Roman coin and not a Jewish coin. That might be an interesting aspect there. But I'm going to read also a few verses that I had pulled out on another thing I'd written about a while ago, but this is from Romans 12 and Romans 13, and I kind of cut and pasted a few different sections because that's kind of a long bit. But everyone always quotes Romans 13 as obey the governing authorities, and that's what you're supposed to do, obey the state, therefore the state is good and it's right. But that's not really the case. So first from Romans 12, 
12, bless those who persecute you, bless them, do not curse them. Repay no evil for evil, but try to do what everyone regards as good. If possible, and to the extent that it depends on you, live in peace with all people. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Never seek revenge, my friends. Instead, leave that to God's anger. And then from Romans 13, a few uh, little statements here. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for rulers are no terror to good conduct but to bad. Another reason to obey, besides fear of punishment, is for the sake of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's public officials, constantly attending to these duties. Pay everyone what he is owed. Uh, Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. So, yes, there are authorities, and God does use authorities and states and rulers for his own purposes. Ideally, the rulers are to be no terror to bad, to good conduct, but to bad. So they're supposed to do good for those who are good and bad to those who are bad. Is that what really happens? Is, does that really describe the state? Well, no, not entirely. But still, the original church, and this would be the writings of the original church, this is from Romans, the New Testament, they had this perspective of they are still an authority, the state is still the authority, if you are using their systems and you are part of the state, you are under the state, you then submit to the state as long as it does not contradict God. And so that verse I read earlier where Yeshua says, you know, basically render unto Caesar what Caesar's render unto God what is God's. Well, everything is God's. So (laughs) that's one thing. But also, if God says to obey the rulers, then you should. And it would only be when those rulers then contradict what God says that you should definitely not. And the only way to get around that is to not participate. So that's this is why, in my opinion, you have this bit in here in Romans 13 where it says, pay everyone what he is owed. It says, pay, you know, honor to him who is owed honor. You know, of course, you pay taxes to him that is owed taxes and so on and so forth. But right after that, it says, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. And so, yes, you pay them what you're owed, but ideally, you don't owe anything. And how do you not owe anything when we're talking about a relationship to the state and the governing authorities? Well, it's not participating with the state and the governing authorities. That would be the only way to not actually owe them anything, except to love one another. So you always live in peace. That's this idea of not rebelling. So it's the aspect of obeying the state until it tells you to go against God is shown in many places throughout Scripture. But this section in Romans is specifically telling a congregation in Rome to live in peace, not draw the wrath of the state on them, and show love even to the corrupt state that is persecuting them. So this isn't because they are doing their job and being righteous— because they're not, but rather because the path of the light, the path of love and peace, not revolt, revolution, or vengeance, is the path they're supposed to take. It's both a practical strategy and a matter of conscience and morality. The goal is to owe the state nothing. Render unto Caesar only what is Caesar's. If you avoid using what is Caesar's, then you can avoid giving anything, hence withdrawing participation in the state without directly fighting it and all from a stance of peace and love. The takeaway for today's situation and today's world would be that if we are operating as much as possible outside of the system, then we avoid the rules of the system without directly revolting and drawing the wrath of the system, of the state. We focus on helping one another 
building community and directing our wealth, energy, time toward things that are moral and beneficial, not towards the state or mega corporations. For times that have direct contradiction with biblical principles, like maybe not gathering together as a community of believers if places are shutting down the church, the correct response would be non-compliance, definitely. However, if we use the system, its money, welfare, schools, whatever, then we are to submit to the rules of that system that we are voluntarily using. So, you know, where does it get its arms to beat you with if not from you yourself? Going back to politics of obedience. So again, this is only if these rules are not in direct contradiction to the principle of loving others and obeying God. So kind of like the idea of Konkins of do not use red markets, do not use violence or force or, or coercion, the, the flip side of that, that's the negative argument there of do not do X, Y, Z. The positive side is do ABC. That would be peace and love and kindness, charity, helping others. That is what you are to do, and these things are in line with each other. So let me wrap this up with another long quote from Bernard Eller from the book Christian Anarchy. He's doing some commentary on the verse I referenced earlier, Mark 12, where it's render unto Caesar what Caesar's, render unto God what's God's. Um, so I'll just go ahead and read what he says about this. Quote, What Jesus accomplished in that Mark 12 confrontation, I suggest, is this. He makes the distinction between the one ultimate absolute choice and all lesser relative choices. So draw on your mental blackboard, if you will, a horizontal line. As poles of an either-or choice, label one end the Archies of Establishment and the other the Archies of Revolution. You need not go to the mental effort of writing them in, but consider that subhead labels could be collaborate with the Romans at one end and resist the Romans at the other, conscientiously pay taxes at one end and conscientiously withhold taxes at the other. A little additional thought would show that in addition to, quote, the establishment versus revolution and any other number of morally contested archie alignments, such as pro-Torah versus anti-Torah, would fit the diagram as well. Any and all such horizontal polarities, such human alternatives, we will call relative choices. In Mark 12, Jesus says that none of these represents the real issue of human existence and social destiny. These, one and all, are ideophora. A quote in parentheses here from Wikipedia. This means in Stoicism, ideophora indicates actions that morality neither mandates nor forbids. In the context of Stoicism, ideophora is usually translated as indifference. In Christianity, ideophora are matters not regarded as essential to faith, but nevertheless as permissible for Christians or allowed in church. So let me start that sentence over again without uh, the definition of ideophora. These one and all are idea fora in comparison to the one choice that really counts. So at the other end of your blackboard, if you haven't already erased that for first diagram, have you? Draw a vertical line, except don't make it a solid continuous line. Dots, dashes, or other forms of tenuousness will do nicely. At the top of this line, then, write God. At the bottom of the line, however, we want to put the entire establishment versus revolution alignment, plus every other possible horizontally, and summarize the whole bit with the word world. 
Now, this vertical alignment in which a person either chooses God or chooses something else, which, however good or evil it might seem, is obviously not God, this constitutes the only absolute choice there is or can be. Quote, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's Matthew 6, 24. The book of Revelation is after the same idea in insisting that at any given moment, every person bears either on his forehead the seal with the name of the lamb and his father, or else on his hand the mark that names the beast. Thus, this choice is absolute in that everyone must make it. To fail to choose God is already to have chosen the world. Of no relative choice is this the case. The whole point of Jesus' response to the tax question is that refusal to join the revolution is not the equivalent of joining the establishment, or vice versa. In Scripture, it is only God in Christ who can say, quote, He who is not with me is against me. The assumption that one must either absolutize the state archy as a god, as does the establishment, or else absolutize it as a Satan, as does the revolution, is utterly false. Jesus asks us to absolutize God alone and let the state and all, uh, and all other archies be the human relativities they are at once relatively good and relatively evil, even as you and I are. The choosing of God, and only this choice, is absolute in that everything else hangs on it. This choice is absolute in that it is the only true life-and-death choice, the only black-and-white choice, the only choice between light and darkness, to use Jesus' own terminology, and my own as a writer's note here. Between God and the world, there is no natural connection, no possibility of gradual transition, no shadings of gray, no middle ground, nothing shared in common between the two ends of the choice, which is why on your diagram you are asked to make that vertical a non-line. Here and only here are we invited or even permitted to hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. This choice, and only this choice, is absolute in that there is no room for dialogue or discussion between the poles, no room for seeking what is true and good in each, for affecting any sort of reconciliation or compromise. Here, there can be no conversation, as there could be none when Jesus chose not to debate Pilate. For when God is that which is to be chosen, quote, to whom then will you compare me? As it is put in Isaiah 40:25. No, all one can do is choose and choose absolutely. Quote, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. So the next quote is also him, but this is a short one. Bernard Eller, quote, both the revolution and the establishment are nothing more than archaeologies regarding the use of political power. Either may be capable of making some real contribution to human welfare, and each is capable of really messing up things. Neither can guarantee anything, whether good results or bad ones. Establishment types are sinners, and revolutionaries are sinners. You can take that to be axiomatic. And that will end my readings, and that will pretty much end the episode. But uh, the point he makes here, and I actually hadn't reread this quote 
in preparation for this episode, so I was not planning on uh, getting to that concept. I'd kind of forgotten about that. But he makes the same point that I had made earlier, that it's this issue of authoritarianism versus voluntary interaction of statism versus agorism. And the way he puts it would be a difference of this choice between God and the world. And within the world, it's all about this idea of uh, dishing out political power, the use of political power, and whether that's on the left or the right, whether that's through revolution or through the establishment, it doesn't matter. It's all this same horizontal line of political power. It's all one side of the spectrum. The other is the kingdom of God. And that is something that is totally separate. It's not that one of these sides of the world system is part of the kingdom of God and the other is not, or one is partial and the other is more partial. And no, they're, they're two separate things. You've got the kingdom of God on one side and you have the kingdom of man on the other. You can't have both. You can't serve both God and mammon, which would be money or the state. You can't do both things. So instead, you have to make that absolute choice to serve God. In doing so... When you fall in line with God, with the natural order, then you necessarily are going to submit to the state in many ways because you're living according to peace. You're living according to sacrifice and love and the promotion of life of all kinds. And so uh, fighting and revolting and rebelling, these are not things that you do if you are supporting these principles of love and life and sacrifice, the main three principles, first three principles of the light side of the natural order in my framework. And so that's the ultimate choice. And you have to, if you are choosing the light side of the natural order, if you're choosing the kingdom of God, you then have to submit to the ruling authorities over you, you have to submit to the state in many instances, or else the only other option is to have some form of rebellion, which is not right. The only time rebellion is possibly a good thing is if that rebellion is against the kingdom of man directly contradicting the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you can be a part of the kingdom of God and still live in the kingdom of man as a representative, as an ambassador, um, dealing in things that are hopefully mostly outside of the systems of the kingdom of man. And you can still interact in that way. And you don't have to actively fight the kingdom of man. That's not really your fight. That's God's fight because it's kingdom of man versus kingdom of God. And you are a representative, but you are not there to carry out God's wrath and judgment on people that are not a part of the church. You can reference a quote, I think, I did last episode or the one before last on that. But the point is that what you are to do is stay in line with the kingdom of God, stay in line with the natural order. And when you are doing so, you are going to contradict the state, contradict the kingdom of man, rebel from that when it is actively pushing you to enter darkness, when it's actively pushing you to participate in the dark side of the natural order, when it's asking you to support the kingdom of man in doing something evil. Yes, you rebel. Yes, you do not participate in that. Non-compliance is definitely the way to go. But if those are not issues and those are not coming up, then peace, life, love, these types of things, sacrifice, that is what you are to do. And in doing so, then you are a much better example 
to those around you. I'll end this with one more verse that now randomly saw here, and it makes a lot of sense here. Acts 25, 8. Paul argued in his defense, quote, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So the point was that he wasn't breaking the laws, and he wasn't going against the Jews, the religious order. He wasn't going against the temple, the other religious order. He wasn't going against Caesar, Rome, the state. He wasn't breaking anybody's laws. He was in line and submitting to those authorities, even though what he was preaching and teaching and doing was uh, directly against them. There were times that he was uh, trying to be arrested. They were trying to detain him, and he actively escaped and ran away. And so there are other times that he, uh, in submission, willingly went to jail. So it kind of depends on the context and the situation here. But the point is that overall, you be at peace with all men. And overall, peace is what you're pushing for. And even when someone is doing wrong to you and someone is treating you immorally, imagine this. What is going to give you a stronger stance among everyone? Is it going to be if you are a criminal or if you are a blameless person. Well, of course, if you're a blameless person, everyone will see that injustice of you being persecuted and attacked because everyone knows you're you're innocent. And that makes an impact on people. That's how you create martyrs, and martyrs are very powerful. And so if you are a criminal and people know that you are actively rebelling against the state or the powers that be and you are fighting it and you're doing all these illegal things all the time, well, then people probably aren't going to have the same sympathy. You're not going to create the same martyr for the common man as you would if you were completely innocent. And so there's this practical aspect of that as well, of submitting when it's not an issue of morality, then that's something that can make a statement in and of itself. Now, I am going too long here, so I'm just going to stop. I will go ahead and say thank you to all of the supporters, especially financially on Patreon, Subscribestar. If you want to do cryptocurrency, there's plenty of ways to do that. They're in the show notes, all of those. You can click on the links. And if you do cryptocurrency, let me know if you want any of the perks associated with being a supporter. Also, I am releasing bits, small bits at a time of the book that I am writing on the Patreon page and Subscribestar. So if that's something you might be interested in, then keep an eye out for that as I do that. Please, if you have not done so, leave a rating and ideally a review as well of the podcast on whatever you can do it on. If you've got to sign up for an Apple account just to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. It's really not that hard. But a lot of podcast players give you that option. If you're listening on the website, you can leave a little comment or you can like the episode or there's different things you can do there. But whatever you can do to kind of help out so when people look up the podcast or look up an episode, um, they can see that, hey, other people like this or, hey, this description they're saying about um, what he's talking about and these kinds of things something I'm interested in, so I'm going to do it. Or, oh, it's got 100 reviews. Well, cool. That's a lot better if, than if it has five stars but only one review. That kind of looks a little sketchy. So if any of you have not done so, please do leave a rating and a review. Please do cons- continue to send me feedback. That is much appreciated. I'm actually getting more than I expected on this season, and that is very helpful. So thank you very much for reaching out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.
Bye bye.